And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Always Nuance Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Steinberg. And today, with no further ado, we are going to be discussing fear, which is another one of these cool topics that I feel like does not really get enough attention, but I feel like it's super important. And today, we're going to be discussing specifically why fear could be very dangerous. So real quick, before we get into some of the nitty gritty, some of the nuance, some of the funny stories or wherever we go to today, we're going to do a quick overview about the science behind fear. So let's all put on our nerd glasses and let's do a quick science overview on what is going on in our brains when we experience fear. So there is a roughly an almond shape, uh, almond size, I should say, part of our brain in the cerebral hemisphere called the amygdala. The amygdala is responsible for a lot of our emotional responses to things, particularly fear and excitement, which truth be told are essentially two sides of the same coin. And anytime we are afraid of something, if we've ever, let's say, God forbid, been in a car accident or almost been in a car accident, um, someone almost bumped into us, we almost like tripped and fell and you have like that stab of fear, or let's say back in our school days, we got bullied or made fun of that like stab of like fear and that awful, shameful feeling. What's happening there scientifically is that our amygdala is activating our sympathetic nervous system. So we discussed before that the nervous system is split in two parts. We have the central and the peripheral. And the central nervous system, which is our brain and spinal cord, is further split into two parts, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, which are basically, they are complements to each other. They're opposites. So the sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight. That's what is activated when we feel like we're in danger, when we feel scared, when we feel excited. Something that tells us to get going, either fight or run because you're in danger. And the parasympathetic is essentially what calms us down and makes us chill and relax. So both these are very important. Today we're talking about fear. So the sympathetic nervous system, which is that part of your nervous system that is making you get excitable and fearful and essentially activating a lot of a lot of uh, your muscle, a lot of your body is put into action when this part of the nervous system is activated, is there for a very important reason. Because think about it, anytime that you're in real danger, like the, you see the brake lights in front of you and you have like a split second to brake. If you didn't feel that immediate stab of fear that if you didn't hit the brake, like something awful would happen, you wouldn't, there wouldn't be such an urgent need to hit the brake and like you can get into an accident. Like it needs to be automatic and has to be that stab that pushes you to act right away because you're actually in danger. So like think about it, it's not a, I guess it's not a fun feeling to experience that stab of fear when like you feel that you're really in danger or embarrassed or something like that. But it's necessary because your body is basically is, is telling you that you have to act. You have to fight or run for whatever this thing is because it is putting you in danger. That being said, if the sympathetic nervous system is too overactive or active when it shouldn't be, it can be very costly. Because what essentially is doing is it's pumping this hormone called cortisol into your blood, which is responsible for a lot of stress. Like people that are overall just very stressed out, tense, have a hard time relaxing, their bodies are probably filled with a lot of cortisol and probably, especially the men, probably do not have a high level of free testosterone. Those hormones are almost like they fight one another. It's almost like a balance between those. Uh, when one goes up, the other goes down. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the science with that, but essentially those two are kind of like opposites of each other. So it, again, cortisol, it's, it's important because we need it to tell us to be, to be tense when danger is present. But the problem is that a lot of times danger is not present and there's no reason for us really to be afraid or excited or really for our nervous system to really be at any state other than at ease. But yet sometimes we are afraid, sometimes we are stressed. And when this part of the nervous system is too overactive, it'll make us age faster, it'll make our hair turn white, it'll make us probably shorten our lives because it's costly to have this 
nervous, the para, the uh, sympathetic nervous system be overactive. So the takeaway is that it's necessary. Fear, the amygdala, the sympathetic nervous system, all this is necessary for survival, but it could come at a cost if it's too overactive. So that being said, I want to talk about a group of things that are scary, and I want you to think about what all these things have in common. So here's a few things. Wild animals, weapons, violence, fire, and drowning. So what do all these things have in common? So if you're thinking of what I'm thinking, I would say that these things have in common in the, in the sense that they are all actually dangerous. All these things could essentially be lethal. Fire can kill you. Wild animals can kill you. Weapons, can, like all these things are actually dangerous. And therefore, it I don't even want to say logical, but it's a good thing that fear of those things is present. Like fear of perhaps, you know, swimming in the open sea like or like a lake or swimming without a lifeguard, it is a good thing that there's a fear of that because that, that could actually kill you. Now I'm going to list another group of things. You're probably going to be able to guess what these things have in common, but let's go for it. So here we go. Public speaking, rejection, bullying, airplanes, roller coasters, looking stupid in public, roaches, negative comments on the internet. So if you guessed it, yeah, all these things have in common is that these things are pretty scary but they're not actually dangerous. So a lot of public speaking, I think is a great example because that's something that I notice a lot of people have a very great fear of. And the truth is you probably can get through life more or less without ever learning to speak in public or having to be good at it. Like I would say if someone goes through their life afraid of public speaking, there might be opportunities that they miss out on because of that. But truth is you really could get by without being a good public speaker. But it's an interesting thing that like this is such a fear of people when the truth is there's really nothing to be afraid of. So if let's say you've never spoken in public before and then you get up and give a speech in front of 200 people that you don't know, you're going to be very, very scared. Even if you've done it before, it's still like I, I've spoken in, I, I've, I've spoken uh, at d different events, school events, stuff like that. But like still, like, every time I do it, it is pretty scary. Um, obviously less so than someone that doesn't, haven't, hasn't done it in the past. But this is like an interesting thing. I remember when I was in college in one of my, I think it was experimental psychology. It was an interesting class. I think I was the only guy in that class. Uh, but I think it was for the final. Part of it was that we had, we split into groups and we had to present the research project that we were doing. There was an oral presentation. Pretty standard in college. I've done it a bunch of times. But this time something weird happened. The two girls that I was with, both of them did not want to present during the oral presentation. They wanted me to do the whole thing. And the professor specifically said that each person will be graded individually for the oral presentation part of it. Um, even though you're in a group, like each person will get their own grade for that part. So I told them like I was, I totally didn't mind. I was comfortable with the material and I had no problem presenting, but I said, you know, it's going to come at a loss for you guys because you're going to get a worse grade. And it honestly, like they, they didn't even care. Like they just, they couldn't, and it, the class was like only 20 students. It was like, I was like, why is this so scary? But they really didn't want to do it. And I think like one of them did like a little bit, one of them didn't do any. And I presented most of it. Again, to me, it wasn't like a big deal, but like in that instance, the, like the, these girls really did suffer at least grade wise not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things, but like they did suffer to some extent by not being able to uh, have the courage to present the the research in front of the class. Um, and the truth is like there really was nothing to be afraid of there because like think about it, let's say they presented and they did just an awful, awful job. Well, they would get a bad grade. That's like basically the worst it could be. Uh, I People in general think that people are always judging them, but the truth is most people and if anyone who's been to college and has had to sit through a class of Pre oral presentations is basically spacing out and just waiting their turn to do a presentation. So like the truth of the matter is no one's really judging you. Probably no one's even paying attention to you and you're 
the worst you can do is do a bad job and then get a bad grade. But by not doing it, you're also getting a bad grade. So it's like something that people are afraid of. But in general, it's like there's not really anything there to be afraid of. Planes are another example. Some people are afraid of flying. And it's it on the surface, it makes sense why that fear is there. Because you're not you're in a position where you have no control over the outcome. You're totally at the mercy of the pilot. You're in a position where if, God forbid, something would happen to the plane, would get into an accident, there's a very low chance of survival. Whereas even like if you get into a car accident, it could be bad, obviously. But I would say most car accidents don't end in death, probably don't even end in serious injury, although they definitely could. But you're also, you're in an unknown environment. You're in the sky. You like It's like, how do planes even work? There's a lot of these factors that would make it reasonable for someone to be afraid. But the truth is, if we look at the data, it's far less likely to get into an accident on a flight than it is driving to work. So it's like, why should you be afraid of that? But yet people are emotionally, or it's not a logical decision. Emotionally, people are afraid of it. But the point I'm getting at is that when we notice this, that we're afraid of a whole bunch of things, some of them is a good thing. It's a good thing that we have that fearful emotional response to it to keep us safe. But some things, the fear is not helping us, it's hurting us. Imagine if you could actually decide what it was that you're afraid of. Would you be afraid of public speaking? Would you be, would you be afraid of starting a new business or approaching your boss and asking for a promotion? Would you be afraid of starting a YouTube channel in which you're afraid that maybe when you start off, people are going to leave negative comments on the internet about you? Like, would you be afraid of this? Like, no. Like, why would like, you would choose not, if you could, if you could make the choice, you would choose not to because these things are not really dangerous. There's nothing really, there's no danger present for these things, but yet they are things that a lot of people are afraid of. Whereas like, if you also, if you could choose your fears, you probably would choose to be afraid of drowning and be afraid of lions because those things can kill you. And it's a good thing to have that fear, which brings us to what fear actually stands for. And the truth this fear is an acronym for false evidence appearing real. And I would say it's, it's amazing to, to uh, witness how we change over the years. If you would have told this to me like a year ago, I would have said that's the cheesiest, stupidest thing in the world. Like, what? Well, it's an acronym, false evidence. But the truth is, I've come to see that that's basically what is most of the time that we are experiencing fear. It's for those things that are not really dangerous and there's really no reason that we need to be afraid of them. Like, think about it. Think about the top three things that you're afraid of. And I mean, like, afraid of that are actually potentially present in your day-to-day or week-to-week life and things that actually may be holding you back from doing what you want. And think, what category are those things in? Are those things actually dangerous? Or are they the second category where, yeah, we're afraid, but there's not really any danger present. I would wager that most people, most of their fears lie in that second category where a lot of people are afraid of certain things, but there's no danger present. And if essentially, if let's say we had the superpower of choosing to not be afraid of things, it would serve us way better than being afraid of those things. This might not be exactly on topic, but one thought, one story that comes to mind is that uh, about a year ago, a couple of friends of mine came and visited me in Fort Worth. And I think I took off six days of work. I think it was like a eight day vacation. I took off six days of work. And at the time I was working as a contracted worker. So I didn't have PTO. I theoretically had unlimited unpaid time off, but I guess it was within reason. So when we were planning it, I was telling my friend like, oh, like, I don't know, I'm maybe a little uncomfortable asking my boss to take off six days. Like, you know, five maybe would be reasonable, but six might be too much. And he said, you know, considering that this is what you want to do, like that we, my friend was telling me that like, assuming that, that we, we want to take a vacation this long and you are you are allowed to you're not doing anything wrong by doing that like it's not like you don't have the time off like you are allowed to ask for it he was telling me that you think like in 60 years you're going to look back and regret that you asked for like another day off and i'm like All right, you got me there yeah no i'm not going to remember this in six and the truth is even a month later it was like totally in the past like of course it was worth it to take that extra day off and have another day with my friends and was my boss mad like no and the truth is a lot of times even i would say let's say i don't know if you've ever gotten a job offer and you wanted to negotiate, like I would say for most of the 
job offers I've received, I never asked for anything more than I was offered. Um, cause I was probably cause I was afraid. And this job, they actually, when I, the job I have now, which I started in January, they, during my like first interview, they asked what I was looking for salary wise. And I gave them like about a $10,000 range. And when I got the job offer, they were offering me the top of that range. So I wasn't really in a position to ask for more money, but I did ask for more PTO. And they kindly told me that there's no flexibility. They can't give me more PTO. I was like, okay, that's fine. And I ended up accepting the job. But I, like that was a little bit scary to ask for because I guess I had this irrational fear in the back of my mind. Like, oh, what if I asked for more PTO? And then they get mad and be like, oh, how dare you ask for more? We're giving you this generous offer and we're being so nice to you. And then you, you're being greedy and asking for more than you deserve. We're going we're gonna to rescind the offer. Like, how, like that's like cataclysmic worst case scenario. The truth is like the odds of that happening, if assuming you ask politely and decently, like, professionally you ask for reasonably higher salary or more PTO, like the odds of that happening is very, very low. And the truth is, even if you did get that response, it's like, did you even want to work for a company that would treat someone that way for politely asking for slightly greater salary or more PTO? It's like, who cares what that person thinks of you if that's how they're going to treat you for asking such an innocent question? So in that situation, the truth is, if you muster up the courage to ask for $5,000 more in your salary, you may get a no you may get like a compromise that will give you 3000 more, in which case you win. If you don't ask, you definitely do not get more. So it's a no-brainer, assuming that there is potential there for some wiggle room. It's obviously beneficial for you to ask because the worst that could happen is to get a no. These are obviously very simple, basic ideas. But I think it's important to be reminded of it because a lot of times that we we lose the nuance when we think about like being in touch with our mind and our body and going with our gut and you know following our mind's compass, like these kind of things, which I think do have their place but the problem is that sometimes our gut is telling us to be afraid of something like, for instance, asking for a raise or starting a business or investing in something that you're uncertain about where like your mind might be hesitant to do it and you might have this like fear of doing it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the wrong thing to do just because your gut is hesitant and telling you not to do it. It could be that you're just afraid because that's the way we are. We are The fact of the matter is for whatever reason it is, we are afraid of a lot of things that don't pose an immediate threat. A lot of evolutionary biologists theorize that the reason why this is is because in times of old, humans used to live in much more communal societies in which you really your survival was dependent on you being part of a community. So like if you got embarrassed in public or if you gave a speech in public and it was awful and people laughed at you, one of those like worst case scenario situations, you actually, your survival would be at risk because we were so dependent on one another to survive. Whether, whether you believe that or not, the fact of the matter is that doesn't exist today. I recently moved into one bedroom apartment. I'm living on my own. I try to go out, make friends, date, do fun stuff, meet people, all those good things. But the truth of the matter is it's kind of like a scary reality. I work from home and I could stay inside literally all the time and have food delivered to me, have clothes delivered to me, have groceries delivered and never leave the apartment. It, it's like scary, but I really could. And that would be a very poor way of living emotionally would be terrible. It'd be a very sucky way to live, but survival-wise, I would be totally fine. Like, actually, I would be, which is like an astonishing thing. So from an evolutionary perspective, we it's almost like there's like a lag. Our, our brains have not evolved to the point where it realizes that in 2023, even though we need friends emotionally, survival-wise, it's not really the same thing. We're not so dependent on our pack and our community as we were in times of old. And I think it's important for us to think of What's the worst case scenario for a lot of the things that we're afraid of? I know a lot of men especially are afraid of dating and approaching women, talking to girls. Like this is something I feel like I'll, myself included, a lot of men especially that haven't been doing it for a while have a hard time with. And I think it's like 
very important to think of how bad could it really be? Like this has never happened to me. I've heard stories, but worst, worst case scenario, you approach a girl at a bar and she says, oh, get away from me, freak. I don't want to talk to you. That's like the worst and like cocktail in the face. Like that's like, okay, that's, that's a little over, uh, that's a little over the top, but I guess that theoretically could be like worst case scenario. That would be pretty bad. But the truth is like, in that case, if that happened, would you really even care that that person rejected you like a psychopath like that? Someone who is going to have such a crazy reaction just by saying hello? Probably not. Like you shouldn't really care what someone like that thinks of you. I've had times where I've went up to a girl and, and started a conversation at a bar and I was like, this is probably the worst that happened to me where like, it was a very dull conversation. Like 30 seconds in, I'm just like, this is, you ever like go up and meet someone and like, sometimes you hit it off and like you have so much to talk about. It's like a fun, energized conversation. And sometimes it's just dead, dull nothing in common, like just bad vibes. So it was, it was that kind. And honestly, 30 seconds in, I should have said like, nice to me and walked away, but I didn't, I clung. Cause that's what I did at that time. And she like tapped like a friend of hers that was like standing behind me. And basically like her friend, like knew what that meant and went and like dragged her away from me. And I got to say like that, that's dumb. It did hurt. The truth is though, that I had to go through that in order to grow, like in order for me to get to the point where something like that doesn't affect me anymore. I had to go through that pain, but even that pain is not that big of a deal. Like it's not that that that's, that's it. Like that's not that bad. And the truth is most of the time it won't even be that bad. So the takeaway is that in our head, in our minds, we always very, very, very often, I should say, make things a lot worse than they actually are. And we make a worst case scenario. Sometimes we don't even have a worst case scenario, but it's like, I think it's important to think of like, what's the worst case that something could turn out in which you face your fear. And most of the time, I think if you logically break it down, there's really not much there to be afraid of. It's a really interesting thing about people that the things that are satisfying in our lives, the things that are actually in the end of the day, bring us satisfaction are hard to, to accomplish and to do. And the things that really leave us feeling not so good are usually particularly easy. I, I heard this really cool quote from Mark Singh, who's the host of the unapologetic man podcast, which I love. And he says that if you do the hard things in life, your life will be easy. And if you do the easy things in life, your life will be hard. And although that is a blanket statement in which I'm not generally a huge fan of, I think this is really, really true. It's like, think about it. If you were to do the hard things, so you're trying to make money, trying to up your dating life, trying to stay in the best physical health that you can, take care of your mental health, pursuing good relationships, spending time with friends, being active, getting up in the morning, doing all the things you need to do. Those are hard things to do. But once you do that, your life is going to be easy. You know, like you take care of yourself, you're making money, your dating life's good, you're eating healthy, you're meeting people. You're networking, like all the, like life is going to be a breeze. But if you, if we just eat fast food, don't go out and make friends, don't try to up our dating lives, don't try to make money, don't take risks, don't face our fears. Those things are easy to do. And then life is going to be pretty hard because then your mental health is going to be awful. Your physical health is going to be awful. You're not going to have any friends. You're not going to have any dating prospects. You are not going to have any money and your life is going to suck. So anytime we talk about these topics, I always like to put in at least a few minutes of actual steps that we can take to overcome our fears instead of keeping it vague. So one thing I'd like to talk about for a few minutes is systematic desensitization. This is a common therapy for a lot of anxiety disorders, especially phobias, and it's very, very effective. So what does this mean? So let's say someone's afraid of cats. Let's say, let's say someone has a phobia of cats and they want to get over this fear because it's holding them back from going outside, from going to people's houses that have cats, stuff like that. So the way this works is that the, the, the logic behind it is that we want to expose the, when you are exposed to something for a long period of time, you start to lose your sensitivity around it. You become callous towards it. This is true about everything, good or bad. Think about it. Like I'm pretty scared of skydiving. 
Um, I'm sure some of you have been skydiving, but imagine if you, ha if you, let's say went skydiving, you did 20 dives a day for six months, like something crazy like that. At the end of those six months, probably before then, but let's say six months, you're not even going to like notice jumping off the plane. It's going to be so routine. It might take a while because I guess skydiving is pretty intense, but it's, it's going to be such a routine thing that you're not even going to even notice like what you're doing. You're just going to, and once you, once you do it so many times and nothing bad happens, your brain starts to learn observing what's going on around you, that this is not something that really needs to cause fear, right? Once your brain sees you do it many times and nothing bad happens, your brain's going to stop activating the amygdala and the sympathetic nervous system because it's going to say that this is not something that's really dangerous, so why be afraid of it? And that's the idea with everything, that when we do something a lot, when we expose ourselves to whatever it is, we lose our sensitivity to that thing. So this could be used for good and for bad, but it could be a very, very effective way of treating something that we are afraid of. So for example, let's say someone's afraid of a cat, right? So the, the, the idea behind it is that if we could make them be around a cat for a very long period of time, eventually, assuming the cat doesn't attack them, they're going to lose their fear of a cat because they're going to see that there's really nothing to be afraid of. Although right away, they'll be very scared. The problem is, is that someone that actually has a phobia of cats, you can't just put a cat on their lap because they will go absolutely out of their mind. But here's what you can do. We systematically expose them to this thing that they're afraid of. So what you would do is first, you would show them a picture of a cat. You'd have them look at a cat for five minutes a day. It'd be a little scary, not like crazy scary, but kind of uncomfortable. Eventually, the picture of a cat wouldn't really cause any fear. The next thing you'd do is they would then bring in a cat into the room in a cage. And you have to be in the same room as a cat that's in a cage for five minutes a day. Be pretty uncomfortable if so you're afraid of cats. Eventually, though, you'll get used to it and realize it's nothing to be afraid of and you'll be desensitized towards it. The next step is let the cat walk around the room. That'll be a little more scary, but eventually won't really have much of an impact. The next step, start petting the cat. Also, that would be a lot scarier because now you're actually making physical contact with it. But assuming the cat is declawed and the cat doesn't attack the, the patient, eventually they'll lose the fear of petting the cat because they'll see that it's not even see, but their brain will rewire because they're going to, it's going to process that this is not something that's really dangerous. And the last step would be to put the cat on your lap. And eventually systematically exposing yourself to the thing that you're afraid of is going to train your brain to stop being afraid of it because you're going to actually see and realize that this is not something that is worthy of fear because it's not really dangerous. And as we're reaching the end of our time here, I'd like to end off with an excerpt from a very famous speech by Theodore Roosevelt. It's known as the man in the arena. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. And I want to read it real quick. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls? who neither know victory nor defeat. It reminds me of an idea I read in this book called The 12-Hour Walk by Colin O'Reilly, which is an awesome book. Uh, it's called The 12-Hour Walk. At the end of the book, he encourages you to take an actual 12-hour walk, which I've done, which is now my go-to fun fact anytime I'm in one of those awkward icebreaker meetings. But he this idea that life is almost like a pendulum. So most people, if they have to rate their, their days on a scale of one to 10, most days would be around a five, some would be four, some would be sixes, maybe even some sevens and threes, but that would basically be it. The people that are actually living awesome lives and having a lot of nines and tens, days-wise, I mean, that comes at a cost of also having days that are ones and twos. Like, think about it. Most of the people in the world that are rich, that have amassed a lot of wealth due to their own financial success, 
it's not that they just started Tesla and it took off and then they became rich. It's that they started maybe a few companies that failed, or maybe they started one where it was really a good idea, but they didn't know how to manage a growing business and it failed, or they had another good idea, but then they took a risk they shouldn't have taken and the business failed. Like a lot of, a lot of screw ups, lost a lot of money. And eventually they get to the one that makes a lot of money. So the, the nines and tens are not really free. They come at a cost of the ones and twos. But the truth is, I feel like for, for me, I would much rather have a lot of really good days and I'll have a lot of really bad days than have just a bunch of mediocre days. Like, I think that's really the worst when your day is like, yeah, my day is okay. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, no, not so good. Like who wants that? I would almost, I'd rather have some bad days sprinkled in there if I could have some really, really good days. And I think most people would agree with me. And the way to get and achieve those nines and tens, those really good days is have the courage to do things that we are really afraid of that we might fail at and might make us have some ones and twos, like start a business and it fails. Like the day that your business fails, I've never started a business, but that probably is a really bad feeling. That day might be a one, but the feeling that when your business takes off and you're making a lot of money, like that's a 10, like, isn't that worth it? But yet most people are like what he's describing here, these cold and timid souls that would rather just stay in the middle, stay on the couch, not really do any, put any effort into things. I'm sure that these people kind of like drag everyone down with them and try to suck people into their own misery and, me and mediocrity. And it's up to us to rise above and to be the risk takers and to face our fears. I think the main takeaway of this is that we should run toward our fears, not away from them. And I think we're going to all realize in the end that in most cases, there was nothing to be afraid of. And to end on a bit of a lighter note, we will end with the following quote. Fear is what it's all about. You cannot sell while undergoing fear. You need to vanquish fear. One must wrestle fear to the ground. Dwight K. Schrute. Well, friends, this has been a fun one, a little bit intense, but thanks for sticking with me. Hope you all learned something. I had a lot of fun doing this one. Please don't forget to tune in next week, and we are going to talk about confidence. One of my favorite topics. Don't forget to tune in then. This is the Always Nuance Podcast. Talk to you all later.